Today is Wednesday. It's October 4th, 2023, and it's 2.38 in the afternoon. It's a time check we always throw in here because sometimes events are changing so rapidly. We like to timestamp each and every podcast, and today may or may not be one of those examples. Hi, I'm John Williams. This is the Mincing Rascals podcast, heard some Saturday nights on WGN Radio. It was live on stage at Second City last Tuesday night, and you can hear me weekdays on WGN Radio from 10 to 2. I'm Austin Bird from the Illinois Policy Institute, and you can listen to my podcast, America's Talking. Hey, it's Brandon Pope, host of On the Block, powered by Blog Club Chicago on WCIU, and host of the Making Podcast on WBEZ. And it's Eric Zorn. I'm the editor and publisher of the Picayune Sentinel, one of the fine Substack newsletters out there. One thing about our podcast last week that we recorded Tuesday night in front of a live audience, it was so nice to see friends and family of the Rascals. John Hansen's family was there and friends were there. I got to meet uh, Austin's mom and dad. They are so nice. They are so proud of their Austin. Now, how did that happen? Do you mean they went the online? The John meeting part or them. the being proud No, part? No, no. How, how, did, how did such a nice couple end up with Produce Austin? Produce something like <laughs> that. Austin's wife was there, too. It's nice to meet her. I did not get a chance to meet her, nor did I meet Brandon's date, who was there as well. Great times were had. The ladies enjoyed the show. They, they had a great time. We'll see uh, who who of them becomes the, the final pick. Huh? <laughs> oh, is that what it was? So <laughs> that's a joke. That's a joke. I kept looking over, like, okay, are they laughing at the jokes or not? <laughs> you got a whole reality show going here. Uh, meanwhile, <laughs> Johanna was off. Uh, she's tutoring. Uh, migrant children and so she couldn't make it so she's a better person than we are that's your that's wife johanna uh, here in chicago yeah. are you serious is she's, she's actually doing that yeah, no, she has, yeah she's got a tutoring is she thing fluent in she's spanish volunteering she's good in spanish she's not totally fluent but she's good are these good the migrants the recent arrivals that she's working with uh, no, no, i'm not exactly sure she's not supposed to ask them about their about their backgrounds or anything it's supposed to be purely academic stuff so she's not supposed to get into those things because uh, for some of these kids it might be a traumatic thing yeah but i know there was one from there was one from syria recently and uh, so they're not all uh the new new arrivals necessarily but wow well good uh, for her i know i'm really really proud of her well my wife brenda was uh unable to be there she was similarly dispatched she was watching episodes nine and ten of suits season four all right how about that (laughs) former president donald trump was sitting in court in the courtroom tuesday he was there again wednesday for that matter at his fraud trial, and yet he has not been the lead story this week. Indignity upon indignity. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has ruled the day, or Florida Congressman Matt Gates, for that matter. Gates led seven other Republicans, joining all the House Democrats to vote McCarthy out of his leadership role. The House reconvenes next week. It's anyone's guess who the new leader will be and what control that person will have. It's unprecedented. But most Americans, I don't think, will really feel it. It's dysfunctional theater, maybe. But to the degree that this is now chaos ruling our lives, and that's how both factions described their caucus, I wonder, to what degree, guys, would you say that Democrats should take some of the blame for the fact that the House is now rudderless? All the Democrats voted with those eight Republicans to oust McCarthy. This is a... A chaotic pie of mess that the Republicans made on their own. Um, they have to control their own caucus. Um, so I'm, I kind of see why the Democrats are like, why are we on the hook here to save this guy? Um, plus, I mean, politically, imagine being in a swing district and you voted for Kevin McCarthy, who is anti so many things that you are for and is is threatening to cut spending on so many things you're for including ukraine aid um it just doesn't it doesn't align well with democratic values or what they're pushing or hoping for they are the ones in control of the house the republicans are if they've got disarray that's that's their problem so i i kind of see how the democrats are like yo that's on y'all not on us it's y'all's issue and mccarthy wasn't a guy that seemed like he was willing to work with democrats anyway he was bashing the democrats just days before he needed them blaming them for the shutdown blaming them for a potential shutdown uh blaming them for the chaos things like that um when really 
all of it is on the right. There's, there's one party that seems to be sure. in function and the adults in the room and the other one is not. I totally agree with that. And, and you know, McCarthy is the one who started this really strange evidenceless impeachment inquiry into into Biden, violating what he'd said about that such a thing would require a vote. Uh, he has been an untrustworthy speaker from both sides. And I guess the Democrats probably felt like, look, you treated us the way you treated us. You uh, went down and, and kissed the hem of Trump's garment after you were criticized him for january 6th he went down on bended knee to him yep and you've been carrying his water in so many ways yep. uh that he is a craven opportunist and how much worse could it get really i mean jim jordan is oh you may the, find uh, out Ohio you may find out yeah you we may. may find out but but there may be some maybe some cooler heads are prevailing i i don't know but it's like it just it just doesn't get a whole lot worse. You could have Matt Gates there. You could have Lauren Boebert there. You could have any of those people there, and they're not going to. It's not going to make any difference. But you won't really get those because, people there because they won't get the votes from the majority of the Republicans. No, you won't. It's probably going to be like Steve Scalise, who's right. the number two in in the, in the House. He's got myeloma, which is I guess somewhat. Treatable or is treatable? It's it's unclear to me. I did okay. Some but Eric, if I may, but, here's but, my point about the devil yeah. that you know. But he did vote for the continuing resolution or dealt with the Democrats. I, I heard what you said, Brandon, but he dealt with the Democrats to keep a continuing resolution to fund the government, and we avoided a debt ceiling crisis. And listen, I'm no, I'm not here to defend Kevin McCarthy. I'm just here to say that we were getting stuff done. Right, the Congress has passed bills. Things have been accomplished under the Biden administration. So I'm not a fan, but there, there did seem to be a certain measure of function there. I'm, I'm sure the White House right now is also just a little concerned, too, because this stalls a little bit of everything happening in the House, right? It's not just the Republicans impacted here. What They got, what, 44, 43 days until the next November deadline for the government shutdown debate? Um, and also the deadline to get aid to Ukraine as well is coming up, too. Yeah. All of those things right now put to the back burner as you have another farce of who is going to be the Speaker of the House, right? So uh, it, it just delays things for the people, ultimately, and, and, and action for the people. So it's not a good look for the entire Congress at all. Um, but it's definitely – I just can't – I can't in good conscience say that this is on the Democrats. Well, as, I don't love the as question. As McCarthy either. would like to paint it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Austin, what are you thinking? I, the point about chaos, I think, is interesting. And Gates had a good response to that. He said, you know what I think paralyzes us continuing to govern by continuing resolution and omnibus? You know what I think throws this institution into chaos? Marching us toward the dollar, not being the global reserve currency anymore. You talk about chaos as if it's me forcing a few votes and filing a few motions. Real chaos is when the American people have to go through the austerity that is coming if we continue to have $2 trillion annual deficits. On paper, I agree with that statement, which I cannot believe I'm saying with a Matt Gates statement. The huge problem is, in reality, what is his actual path to achieving that? They were able to get some cuts in the budget. That's now scuttled. He's going to get less cuts, not more. He wants less Ukraine funding. The Senate is going to shove Ukraine funding so far down the throats of the House now that it is in chaos. And I think Thomas Massey actually had a very interesting comment on this. He's usually with this caucus on a lot of spending issues and other issues, and, and he did not vote to, to take out McCarthy. So he said basically what we're going to get now is going back to the old test the old testament is the way that he put it we're going back to big omnibuses we're going back to the way things were before it's going to get worse not better because you did this so really what you're seeing is gates getting a ton of media attention really building his id his name id uh building his his standard bearer as like a purity test for something but it's ultimately a philosophy of losing. He is going to lose on every single issue that he has talked about. Uh, is his, every single issue he said is his reason for doing this is an issue where he's going to get a worse result because of this. For all this bleeding about the deficit, the deficits exploded under Trump. 
And and this was in part because of these tax cuts for the rich that people like Matt Gates supported. So so I'm uh, I'm not playing the world's saddest song on the world's tiniest violin for these people who are all concerned about the deficit suddenly. I mean, the Republicans love to talk about this when they're not in power, but when when they're in power, when they're controlling it, deficits go up. So so spare me. And if you do, and, and Massey is an example of someone who did talk about that uh, during the Trump presidency, and I think actually does have that. Um, have some principles on that. Gates clearly does not. His votes have shown that he doesn't actually care about the deficit, but he saw a a really big opportunity to make a name for himself. Will the next speaker have to live with a one person can call for your idea? What does it vacate? Will the next speaker have to live with that rule? That was a, that was a deal that McCarthy struck. Well, I, I, first of all, I don't think that McCarthy wanted that at all. No, no, he was no. Forced to accept sure, that, sure. and and it, and it may be that the new nominee, whoever it is, the front runner, if it's Scalise or or some of the other people who've been mentioned uh, about this, that that person is going to have to do some pre-negotiating with Democrats about what what kind of things they might be able to support. That you might be able to get a Republican speaker with some Democratic votes. Uh, as part of some sort of larger deal about how Congress is going to run, how yeah. the House is going to run, because because otherwise you're just I, I don't I don't know what's going to change. That's that was my point earlier was like, you know, it doesn't matter which wing nut you put in there. This, that Republican caucus is still fractured and they're not going to be able to advance. You know, when we face this new spending cl- or the uh, the government shutdown cliff, which is, I think, uh, Brandon said it was like seven weeks away, something like that. I don't know who's going to be the one who's going to be in charge, who's going to make that go smoothly, unless you've got someone who has managed to cut some sort of bipartisan deals with the Democrats. Yeah. I feel like the Democrats did not want to do that with McCarthy because they don't trust him. And you can see why they don't trust him. So maybe they they, they can work with this, with somebody else. I'm not sure. Congressman Christian Murthy told us as much. He said that uh, he would have considered voting for McCarthy Tuesday, if if he had conceded a few things like no more brinksmanship, aid for Ukraine, there were a few things. Maybe those would be part of the calculus going forward. This sounds wild me saying this, but the, the great uniter of the Republicans may be Jim Jordan. Uh, Jim Jordan wants to run for Speaker of the House, Congressman out of Ohio. He dips his toe in the crazy extreme part of the party enough while having the respect of the more statesman classic conservative part of the party enough where he actually might be the one that would be able to maybe survive having that stipulation. Maybe they don't even call his ouster because he's able to appease the Matt Gates and the Lauren Boberts as well as the more conservative and traditional members as well. So I'm, I'm curious how that's going to play out. He's the one running this impeachment inquiry, this bogus impeachment yeah. inquiry. I don't see, I don't see any exactly. Democrats getting behind yep. that. So I don't know. And I, and I, you know, I don't, I don't see him as a uniter. But they don't at need all. the Democrats. They don't. They don't really need the Democrats. Yeah, not a, not, not a uniter of Democrats, a uniter of Republicans, yeah. Marjorie Taylor Greene voted to keep Kevin McCarthy as the speaker. She tweeted today that she thinks that it should be Donald Trump should be the new speaker of the House. <laughs> that, you know, that was a conversation. That was a tweet before. You know, if you're counting the eight crazies, um, actually, there's more than that. Some of them are even crazier. I didn't see Boebert's name on the list of eight either, now that I think about that. Trump was asked if he would serve as speaker. And his response was classic Trump. It was sort of, you know, I'm up 50 points for president. I want to focus on president, focus on being president. But, you know, I'm happy to help. If they need me, I will help. You know, that <laughs> sort of a thing. Happy to serve my country. Well, it, would, it would torpedo his presidential ambitions because it would, it would require him to do some work, which uh, he doesn't particularly seem to like to do. And uh, I think he'd be he would be actually uniquely terrible at being Speaker of the House, which is a, a, a position that really requires a lot of management and ego massaging and all kinds of like that, that he's just absolutely not good at. Oh, yeah. And oh, so yeah. it would be really fun and funny to watch it, perhaps, but the country might crack up. And- what an image that would be, Donald Trump next to Kamala Harris behind Joe Biden at the State of the Union. That'd be That'd be insane. That'd be insane. We said no cases would be active before the election on a previous podcast, but I guess we were talking about the criminal ones, because here we are, a civil bench trial, and the judge hearing it, Arthur Engeron, has already determined that the former president committed fraud by overvaluing the size and value of his properties. Liability is still to be determined on six other claims by New York Attorney General Letitia James, and indeed how much Trump might owe in penalties. Um, 
Do you guys think that President Trump, former President Trump and his team purposely chose to forego a trial? Or was it really that big of a screw up that they didn't check the box that said we want a jury trial? I mean, this is the judge who's a Democrat and who previously judged against him. And then when it was the opportunity to have a judge, a bench or a jury trial, they inadvertently or intentionally opted for that same judge to decide his fate. Eric, what's your guess on that? I'm guessing legal incompetence because Trump hasn't had very good legal representation all along. He's uh, he doesn't pay his lawyers. So I think he's probably got some bargain basement attorneys and they uh, they just miscalculated here. I, that's all I can figure because, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. One interpretation I heard of that was that knowing that you're going to lose better to lose to some corrupt Democrat judge who's got it in for you, like the attorney general, rather than a jury of your peers. Right. It would look worse for him to be found liable to the tune of a quarter billion dollars by 12 unelected peers. And, you know, Austin, if nothing else, were you surprised? Two and a half days he's in the courtroom sitting right there. But I was the- so sh- It was so bizarre seeing that weird um, footage of that, like, handheld camera where it mugs on Trump and then on the judge. Did you guys see that? It mm-hmm. looked like. It looked like um, the Family Matters intro or like a weird (laughs) 80s sitcom intro where it's like you go to the person, they do like an aw shucks, and then their name comes in the bottom. That was very surreal to see. Yeah. He had every opportunity then to go outside and essentially campaign or, you know, make his case almost better there than elsewhere. So maybe it makes sense. This is Wednesday afternoon. My my understanding is the president – President Trump. Is it right to call him President Trump? Former President Trump? Do you got to say former President Trump? You know, I object to this on principle that we call people who used to hold an office by the title of the office. That's what I thought the protocol was. You always call them senator or whatever. People call Pat Quinn governor all the time. He hasn't been governor for, what, 10 years now? (laughs) I I just, I don't think, I I, I mean, nobody calls me a columnist. I'm not a columnist anymore, you know? If you ran into your high uh, high school sports coach, though, wouldn't you call them coach when you saw And if you run into your old high school biology teacher, you would say, say, hello, Miss Grosso, because Eileen is always Miss Grosso to me. That's just the way it is. It's the honorific. You always afford them their highest most or most recent rank, Eric. No, I don't like it, but I'll go along with it. So this guy, Donald Trump, he was there. What else is jumping out at you, Eric, on that case? Well, just that it threatens to really undermine the entire reason that Donald Trump claims to be uh, a successful and, and smart enough person to run a country. His entire enterprise seems to be based in on fraud, and he may lose just about everything in terms of his business licenses in New York. And there is a great deal of evidence that suggests that he is you know, a liar. I mean, and, and when it comes down to people talk about him lying about one thing and another, these are like facts and figures lies. These are, are things that you can't just say, oh, that's that's an opinion you have. Or uh, these are, are, are hardcore provable lies that he's he's been caught in. I'll be really interested to see if he testifies. He can't keep his mouth shut in general. He says and he his lawyers. His lawyer, yeah, he says he will, and his lawyers have been pretty good about keeping a muzzle on him. The way Blagojevich's lawyers are pretty good in his first trial, not letting him testify. Uh, but then sometimes these politicians have so much confidence, so much arrogance that they think that they can talk their way out of anything. And Trump's entire life, he's talked his way out of, of things, and he may think that he can talk his way out of this. I don't think he can. I don't think him going under oath on something like this is going to turn out at all well for him. And I'm really looking forward to that. It's so hard for me to guess what sort of <laughs> new information or useful information is going to come out of things like this. It's almost like the investigations, right? The impeachment investigations in the House or something like, or even the indictments themselves. How much of the stuff is things that we already know versus things that would be material to someone's opinion about President Trump? Curious to see, but I I, I don't know where to set my expectations. I guess. You're saying that maybe this doesn't hurt him all that much politically. Is that what you're suggesting, Austin? Yeah, yeah. Although, so. you know, I don't know that this would matter in a legal sense, but it is interesting to me if it's true. He said that nobody was harmed by his overestimations of the value or size of his properties. The banks were paid 
paid in full, paid at the rate that was promised, etc. Uh, again, I don't know that that's true, and I don't know that his manipulation of the numbers didn't give him either tax or insurance breaks, and I guess that's against the law. But he's adamant that n- nobody was financially wronged here, which is hard to believe for Donald Trump. But but that's an interesting defense, Eric. That's it's it's not that interesting a defense because essentially <laughs> I mean, he 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 ended up he ends up paying lower interest rates because he's able to because he's able to say that his properties are worth more. I mean, there's a reason why they ask these things. There's a reason why they conduct these background checks is they want to know how much interest rates you charge. And these banks were arguably cheated out of the higher interest rates that they would have charged. And it's kind of like you know you you rob a bank. And then you decide afterwards, and a couple of days later, that you're really sorry about it, and go back and give the money back. That you can't say, well, no, all's forgiven. No, that doesn't. That's not the way it works. And well, he uh, only uh, he only so. hires the most highly ethical uh, property tax attorneys. For instance, Ed Burke. Um, you know, things, but people like that, they do things by the book, above board. Yeah, yeah. All good. If I don't see Trump in cuffs, then I just don't really, I don't really care. Oh, you don't. It's probably not going to result in cuffs. You know, I think this is though, uh, I get it. This is civil and that's not going to happen. But I just wonder if this will at least be one of the moments people can say, okay, we finally got him. We got him on something. Scratch that itch. Maybe not. <laughs> Hannah Meisel just chimed in. Uh, you may have heard the bling. She's the state government and politics reporter for Capital News, Illinois. And by the way, producer Pete, Hannah, welcome to the Mincing Rascals podcast. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I, I'm just going to read your bio here that producer Pete produced for us. You were also voted class clown in high school, according to <laughs> Twitter. That is true. That is true. Capital News Illinois is a nonprofit news service operated by the Illinois Press Foundation, providing coverage of state government to newspapers throughout Illinois. So you guys do reporting kind of like an Associated Press or somebody like that and provide it for other places to repost or reprint. Is that it? Yeah, that's the idea. Uh, The CNI started in early 2019. And, you know, the Associated Press, unfortunately, has disinvested in the Illinois State House, even though we love John O'Connor still, uh, the AP reporter, can't do it all. And so that's the idea behind CNI. So how long have you been doing this then with them? I have been with CNI since uh, this past, this January. So, you know, uh, nine months, but I've been reporting on the State House and state government uh, for the last 10 years. We did want to talk about the migrants that are still coming to Chicago, which you have been writing about, from South America via Texas. A couple older persons in the city want Chicago to look at moving some of the new arrivals to other cities, even red ones. Meanwhile, suburban Chicago township of Joliet is saying that they should turn down over $8 million to help care for them. We didn't ask for the migrants, they say, and we want neither them nor the money to help care for them. In a letter to the president, Governor Pritzker says the federal government is abdicating its responsibility for these asylum seekers. J.B. chastised the president for a lack of intervention at the border, and he reminded the president that the current expedited plan to get Venezuelans working here is is going too slowly. This is a kind of sensitive area. Uh, J.B. Pritzker is a strong ally of President Biden. When Biden was here in June, Biden said the governor was one of the people most responsible for getting me elected in 2020. Governor Pritzker rallied really hard to get Chicago to uh, be able to host the DNC uh, next summer. And this is an issue that, you know, affects DNC's prospects because, of course, one of the main goals for these uh, Republican leaders, uh, Greg Abbott, governor of Texas uh, specifically, kind of embarrass leadership in these blue states, in these so-called sanctuary cities. Sure, in theory, you're a sanctuary city, but what's it like when you really get a bunch of people on your doorstep? And of course, you know, to use these you know, they're people. They are people who escaped from unimaginable things in their home countries, uh, Venezuela experiencing a, an economic and political collapse. And so to use people as political pawns, always horrible. That being said, we have to deal with reality. And Governor Pritzker is saying, you know, hey, federal government is so disorganized. It's making our jobs so difficult. Something as basic as why doesn't the federal government have kind of a handle on 
when people are coming into the country, uh, it seems like they're kind of just let loose after Customs and Border Patrol right. uh, detain them for a bit. Right. And so, you know, if the federal government could step in and uh, at least uh, have some sort of oversight of the transport of these migrants to Chicago and other cities, we could at least know when they're coming instead of just being surprised by the busloads that are arriving. At the end of August, it was only uh, 13,000 migrants that had arrived in the last year. Currently, we're standing at 15,000. So that's a 2,000 increase in the last month. And we're expecting it to get uh, possibly 20,000 in the next week or two. I mean, this is an incredible statistic. They're talking about maybe 20 to 25 buses a day, five days a week. That's like 5,000, 50 people on a bus. They're talking about 5,000 or more, 6,000 new migrants every week coming to the city. Those are, those are numbers be, almost beyond imagination. Are, are the, do you think those are true? And if they are true, what are we going to do with, with all those people? Where can we possibly put them and feed them and keep them safe and keep them you know, just keep them healthy? That's the, that's the question. It's unimaginable the number of people who have come here already. Some have kind of integrated, been able to integrate themselves into, uh, you know, Chicago, but if you come here and you don't have any connections, you have no family, you have no distant, uh, you know, friends or friends of friends who can possibly support you, that's where you get the situation that we're in now. Uh, these people, they're not able to work, uh, which is another thing that uh, states and cities uh, like Chicago and Illinois have requested the federal government allow, you know, kind of expedited processing of work permits. But if you're not allowed to work, and you're, you don't know anyone, you know, you're going to be basically allowed to languish in places like police stations, in the airports. Volunteer groups have really borne the brunt of yeah. trying to help yeah. these people. Um, you know, there have been, I think it was at last count, maybe 16 shelters set up by the city. That's just, it's just not nearly enough. The idea behind sending money to places like Joliet Township, which uh, you had mentioned, John, uh, earlier, uh, Joliet Township is the one that requested the money. The city of Joliet, which yeah. is a uh, municipality, that's right. That's right. Uh, you know, they said, "Well, we don't want this." You know, they're they're a separate municipality. I guess they want to refuse the eight million dollars that Joliet Township had applied for and got. The city of Chicago cannot be the only community on which these people have to rely because this is such a tremendous but joliet did not declare itself a sanctuary city i think that's part of the thinking they they, they said we didn't ask for this and and we don't want the money because then we'll be beholden to spend it for the care of these people i i want to go back to a point that you made a moment ago and i think it's so true that where is the federal coordination of this after their allowed into the country, the president's office and the Congress seem to have no interest or ability to manage or track them. It's just like we just throw them off into the wild. The city of Chicago just created and hired a chief homelessness officer, a CHO, $150,000 for somebody to coordinate the care of the homeless people in the city. Why don't we have a migrant czar or something managing oversight of this federal problem? If I'm not mistaken, I don't I don't think we have anything like that. That no, was, I believe, exactly, what Pritzker asked for, right, Hannah? Wasn't that in his letter? That was exactly what was in his letter. He said, you know, there are too many people in the administration that are dealing with separate parts of this process. Please, for the love of God, you know, create one office, one point person, so that uh, city and state leaders can coordinate with them. Because right now, you know, the people that you do have who are in charge of the different parts of the process, they don't seem to be communicating. They're very siloed. And then nothing gets got done. Hannah, is there any indication at all, you know, with the with the cost ballooning, I mean, more than $300 million between the state and the city of Chicago together, that Chicago or the state overall just says, hey, we've had all we can. We've done all we can. We got to we got to pass the buck somewhere else. Like, has there been any indication of that or is it still kind of like welcoming cities is what we have to do? John did mention up, uh, at the top that, you know, there was possible consideration of sending people to other cities. Uh, New York has already 
done that. Some of the migrants who have come here through O'Hare, they have been flown from New York where they had originally gone. It's the goal of these Republican leaders, these border state leaders, to try to embarrass cities and states that have said, we are a welcoming city. So to kind of throw in the towel and say, well, you know, there are too many, that would kind of feed into that. Um, So I don't think that we're there yet, but uh, I'm not ruling out getting there at some point in the future. It would be ironic if we then put people on buses and sent them to Oklahoma City. That would be as inhumane conceptually as what Abbott is doing to these people. This is a problem that does require the sort of federal response that the pandemic required. Uh, I know it's a, it's a, in a different scope, a different scale, different levels of actual human tragedy at this point. But if you look at what say, Brandon Johnson is dealing with in his first few months as mayor, and you look at what uh, Lori Lightfoot had to deal with in her first year as mayor, uh, these are, are is a problem so staggering, so large, that it's going to just make it impossible for Johnson to do anything that he wants to do. There's going to be no money for anything. If we're, we're spending, I, I, you know, I don't even know what the latest figures are going to be, but we're going to be spending hundreds of millions of dollars creating these uh, tent cities and handling the uh, educational demands, the healthcare demands, uh, security demands for for this migrant population. And at the same time, you've got a a city that's kind of in an uproar. There were some stories uh, just last night out of Amundsen Park. They were going to use the field house to house the the migrants. And the community out there was just, it was furious about this. And I can't, I don't even know yet, and I I, maybe I've missed it, but where are these tent... tent city is going to go, which parks are going to welcome them, or which vacant areas are going to welcome them, which neighborhoods are going to welcome them. Because I think a lot of people are very cool with the idea of, yes, we're a welcoming city, and yes, these people have suffered, and yes, we need to welcome them, but not in my backyard. And and uh, you're seeing that in these news stories over and over again. And I just, I I don't know what I would do if I were Mayor Johnson, where I'd put them. There's just, there's not there's not places for them. We talked at Second City a bit about how this is exposing the fragility of the city in many ways. And it's definitely doing that financially. When you have $300 million in city costs, there are some estimates that this is going to cost up to 500 to $700 million over the next year. Um, but it's also fraying these sort of political coalitions. And I think one of the interesting things that's happening now that's a little bit different than Lightfoot and COVID is, yes, you did have uh, some public spats at the margin between Lightfoot and Pritzker a little bit further on in the pandemic where she was sort of wanting to loosen things up a little bit, especially bars and restaurants in the state was saying no. But at this, almost at the first punch, you have Brandon Johnson's floor leader, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, saying, just laying into the state, saying, you guys have done nothing for us. We have received no support. There are no shelters uh, and very openly criticizing the Pritzker administration. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, Hannah, of how you see that playing out, because that seemed to be very combative. Uh, and and that's that's Johnson's floor leader. Right? And playing out on Twitter, too, by the way, which yeah, I, I just wish Twitter. I'm like, really, like, is this it, a tweet? It, yes. Imagine Ugh. if that was during COVID. This is a, a large crisis and you have two very important political yeah. leaders sniping at each other. Uh, on Twitter. Sniping right. Each other. Yeah. Well, I mean, going back to Brandon's question, same thing. Like, I think that leaders like Greg Abbott, they kind of rejoice over you know, the, the classic uh, trope, Dems in disarray. Pritzker recognized that that's embarrassing to have public spat, uh, you know, seeing public division among Democrats. On Sunday, he and Mayor Brandon Johnson, they, uh, you know, tried to get on the phone uh, with the White House. They had a kind of conference call. Um, so they, I think there's a recognition of like, we can't have the, our fights play out in public that does nothing but to play into you know the hands of the republican leaders who are sending migrants to illinois and to chicago that's kind of why uh abbott and texas is kind of ramping up more buses this week well to what degree is it our responsibility to care for some of these people there's no federal coordination too bad texas they're a border state should Illinois, you know, forget how embarrassed we are. Actually, we should. We're a big state. We're a big city. And we we declared ourselves a sanctuary. So should we be caring for these people? It's it's not 110,000 like New York has. And it's not a million like Texas has. It's 
15,000. Should this be our responsibility? Our responsibility? You mean re- residents of Chicago? And I think, yeah. I, Hannah, I don't know if you live in Chicago, but the, re- the rest of us do. And I do. Uh, or actually, do you, well, yeah, John does. I have many yeah. homes, Eric. <laughs> but it, I have multiple yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> Like you and, you and Bruce Rauner, I know. Got to, <laughs> yeah, houses, I get that a lot. All <laughs> okay, just cut to the question. Uh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm distracted by the, uh, by, by the question here. This is, a, this is a, 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 it's not our problem. It's a federal problem. It is, it is a problem for the citizens of the United States. Absolutely, it is. But it's not Texas's problem either, then, right? And yet they've been no, asked to bear the burden. Okay, be. so I'm just it wondering. Be. No, I, I agree with that. I think also framing anyone as a quote unquote problem is not the framing that we really want to have. For years, immigration was looked upon in the U.S. as a positive thing. People coming in. Uh, bringing skills, growing the population. Of course, there's the faction of people who uh, are worried about America's birth weight and the birth rate of other westernized countries. To frame anyone as a problem that needs to be dealt with, I just think is kind of inhumane. Would we rather have immigration, you know, be more predictable? Sure. Uh, But this is what we're dealing with. And of course, about a month ago, five weeks ago, the governor, uh, Mayor Johnson, uh, Dick Durbin, a bunch of other uh, city and state leaders and business leaders, uh, they stood up and they said they had this whole event and they said, like, we need the work permits. The federal government needs to, you know, expedite these work permits. So these people who are, you know, they legally cannot work. Uh, they don't have to be languishing if they can find a job, if they can build a life for themselves. Of course, to find housing, we have an short, affordable housing shortage everywhere. But at least, you know, the conversation wouldn't be about taking care of people in tent cities. Yeah, you're, you're probably right about that. I and, and in terms of like them being a problem, I mean, it is a it, let's I can reframe that and say it's a challenge. It's a, it is an enormous challenge to keep them uh, safe and and healthy and fed and cared for and so on. I mean, it's you know not to disparage them as a as a as a problem. Also, want to clarify a little bit about you know being a sanctuary city means that we don't. Uh, coordinate with our police and, and and federal immigration officials. It doesn't it doesn't really have anything to do with whether we're good people or not. Uh, if, whether we like immigrants here, um, and I also think that the Irish and Italians might might take a little exception to the idea that we've always welcomed immigrants here before this. <laughs> that there are a lot of immigrant populations that really I know really struggle like, with it. Immigration in general, the concept. There's been groups that have been looked upon with a lot more scorn. What I'm trying to do is subtract the motivation of Governor Abbott. That is, suppose it wasn't a political gesture, but a practical one. If he had called us up and if they did coordinate the buses, they say, guys, we're just bursting at the seams here. So we're going to send on Thursday six more buses and we're going to help you coordinate this. You know, what, what if it was like that? We would still have people come into Chicago, yes. and it would we still be a challenge, and we still That's wouldn't right. be able to handle it very well. So I think it's easy to get distracted by the inhumane way that Abbott is treating these people as pawns, but I don't think that minimizes the potential obligation that we have to also share the burden. And the only thing we're not getting from Greg Abbott is notification. I mean, you better figure there's going to be another dozen buses tomorrow and the next day and the next day. The other difference is like, you know, if people were coming here, and if if all the Germans who came to Illinois in the late 1800s had to deal with the amount of officiousness and busybody regulatory paperwork to work productively, like they might have left. Like, I don't even know if they would have stayed in Illinois. Like it, 25%, forget the federal uh, work authorization. I think a quarter of all jobs you need some sort of state license or professional license in order to do, right? So it, it is a bigger challenge to uh, to gain self-sufficiency in a legal way now in the United States. And I think the to the nature of, of Chicago and Illinois being downstream of a bigger problem, it's like if you were in a village at the bottom of a river and once a day there was a baby that floated by on the river, you have to go, we need to save that baby. Like we can't have, leave that baby in the river. But then imagine after three or four days, a couple of weeks of you doing that, it's a thousand babies coming down the river every day you should and you would feel obligated to 
take care of all of those uh, those babies and not these people shouldn't be infantilized. They should be self-sufficient. I'm using it to make a point about uh, the response to a challenge. Uh, eventually, you have to go up to the top of the river and say, like, what's causing all this? Where where are all these babies coming from? And that's what I think the point needs to be about the border is that it needs to be everyone. I think left and right can agree that there needs to be some sort of orderly process by which people are able to come into the country. And that's what's lacking right now. And that's ultimately like the upstream problem here. And every member of Congress we talk to about that, they go, you're absolutely right. And then we say, what are you going to do about that? And they go, eh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah for years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've seen small groups of some of these migrants now on street corners um, selling at inflated prices candy bars the way you have seen other groups do that in the past. And I thought we're turning them into panhandlers. We've got to find a better way to allow them to afford shelter and, and the things that they need on their own. Uh, that new homelessness officer, the CHO, $150,000 a year. Uh, Black Club Chicago's Manny Ramos writes today that the CTA president, Dorval Carter Jr., has received twice a year pay raises since 2018. His pay has gone from $230,000 a year to, as of this summer, $376,000. He's getting professional athlete pay. That's more than the mayor, more than the CPS, more than CHA, more than the park district chiefs. No agency in the city or state gets paid. What the guy who rode the buses twice last year is getting paid. (laughs) That's just an aside, I guess, but golly. Well, that's a 60% increase from 2018 uh, of his salary, which is just wild no one gets a 60 percent increase not even patrick mahomes like that, it's, just, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's crazy to see so uh where i say gonna it's funny you bring this up we're actually gonna have manny on the show uh, on the blog card by blog club chicago uh thursday evening to talk about this because uh you dig into the numbers even more these board meetings that are had with, within the cta um not a lot of accountability at all he doesn't have a contract they have these board meetings that say the board holds him accountable but the transcripts show it's a lot of glowing reviews, a lot of patting on the back, a lot of, oh, love your plan for this. We probably should address this, but hey, good job, bro. Keep up the good work. And that's every monthly meeting wow. with all the issues CTA has been having. So it definitely needs to be some sort of uh, extra looks at what's going on with the vet agency because uh, it's been lacking for quite a few years now. I'm going to the uh, to the Chicago Fire Miami game tonight, and it doesn't look like Messi's going to play, which is a huge bummer for me. But I think there are people yeah. on the field who are getting paid less than uh, <laughs> and, and the other interesting thing is, so Brandon Johnson was pretty strong. I think every mayoral candidate was like, when asked, would you fire this guy, that everyone was like, well, we'll make an assessment, but you know, it's not looking good for him. Uh, and Brandon Johnson had this standard where he said, I'm going to evaluate people for three months and then I'll make my decisions. And, you know, Arwoody is out. And yet this guy, I think Johnson is more than almost five months into his administration and this guy is still around. So that is going to be the question that's going to come up more often. It's not the mayor's call. It's a separate, you know, entity. Right. But he has huge sway over who would be the the CTA. And he hasn't he hasn't called for him to step down. Mm-hmm. And, oh, but but and Brandon Johnson. No, he's refused to uh, to appear in front of city council, which Johnson presides over. Yeah, no kidding. But Hannah, you're saying that Mayor Johnson cannot fire Dorval Carter Jr. He does not have that authority. No, it's not directly under the mayor's purview, is my understanding. But you know, it, it brings in a question like stability at the top of an agency, because you know, without stability, uh, you know, government tends to. <laughs> There's inertia in play, and that's, you know, the inertia can be not good if there's uh, chaos at the top uh, and then, you know, people in the middle, bottom of the agency uh, don't have direction. However, I think that Dorval Carter, this situation, you know, it, it makes me really wonder, like, what would be a much better way to structure that agency? Yeah, speaking of agencies and leadership, Hannah, do you have any insight as to what's going on? Mark Smith has resigned as head of DCFS after, what, four or five years um, in the job? And that was right. just announced today, right? So this morning, uh, Wednesday morning, on an agency-wide kind of meeting, although it, it was more like a uh, one-sided uh 
live stream video to uh, agency employees. Mark Smith, who has been uh, Governor Pritzker's head of the Department of Children and Family Services since uh, spring 2019, he said that he's going to uh, step down at the end of the year. And um, so far, we don't know who's going to lead the agency. Uh, you know, I'd predict there's going to be another kind of uh, nationwide search back in 2019. Pritzker spent $50,000 of his own money to hire Smith. Um, you know, he presided over a very tumultuous time in the agency. Uh, certainly child welfare issues um, just kind of gotten worse for a variety of reasons. Child welfare is kind of a downstream effect of other sorts of poverty. You know, the the budget impasse, I know that it's it seems like ancient history now, but from 2015 to 2017, a lot of these it, these, these contractors, these nonprofits that contract with the state for uh, human services, they weren't getting paid. And so a lot of them shuttered or, you know, significantly shrunk. And once, you know, we got a budget back in place in 2017, you can't just snap your fingers and have everything go back to the way it was. You know, a renewed focus from news outlets on child welfare issues, you know, around the time that Mark Smith stepped into the job, certainly uncovered just distasteful thing after distasteful thing. It's really, really hard to combat um, narratives like that, even when they're true. And also, less than a year after he was in the job, COVID hits. And COVID really disrupted any sort of work that the agency was trying to do. How much of this is tied to that one case? Trial? Yeah. AJ AJ Freund. That was something that... So AJ Friend, who was a five-year-old from Crystal Lake back in 2019, actually the day that Mark Smith was appointed, he was killed by his parents. And a few days later, his dad calls the police and says, oh, my kid's missing. You know, less than a week after that, his body was found. Eventually, the authorities pieced together that, like, actually, his parents killed him. We sat on the news for a few days and then reported him missing. This is a little white boy, and uh, he certainly captured a lot more news attention than similar cases of abuse and neglect you know, by kids of color and DCFS followed up on it and then said, oh, I don't know, this is unfounded or not indicated. But it, it is really tragic. You know, I, I wouldn't place everything on this one case. It's just one of many, many, you know, in the story that we put out this afternoon. Uh, you know, I went back and chronicled all of the things that Smith was walking into, all of the kind of pro- high profile blow ups at the agency, especially in his first year. And it was far more than one child death. It's kind of a whole agency issues and it's structural issues. And in fact, uh, more and more lawmakers are coming around to this kind of experimental idea. And I don't know that would have ever actually grow legs, but this kind of experimental idea that maybe DCFS needs to be radically restructured, made smaller and have other agencies take on, you know, some of DCFS's responsibilities and also put some of those responsibilities closer to, you know, where things are closer to on the ground situations and have maybe counties take over uh, some of the child welfare, uh, you know, responsibilities. Because from a big statewide agency, uh, some a lot of things are just getting missed. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for the insight on these stories. We hope you can join us again sometime. Thanks, Hannah. For complex topics on state government, I think Hannah is the best in the state. And so I'm very glad that she joined us today. And it was great having her. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well done, Hannah. We'll call again. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, you guys. See you, Hannah. We didn't get to something that surprised me, Eric, that you said on the radio and shared with your readers about the robbery rate in the 90s versus the robbery rate now. Well, yeah, there's some some reporting just in the last few days about how the robbery rate in the early 90s in Chicago was far higher than it is today. And I don't remember there being quite the civic uh, tumult about that. And I was sort of speculating as to why that might be, why people are sort of are more seemingly more exercised about the robbery problem uh, than they were then. And, you know, a couple of theories. One is that it was still concentrated in the, in the poor neighborhoods that don't get covered as much. Um, my theory is that there's a, so much more 
in the way of social media and and just media outlets in general that you have you know CWB Chicago you have social media where people are sharing their stories so that it it feels more present more urgent more real to people and that that's why it's become a, a more of a hot topic now than it was in the early 90s there's clearly been an increase there's clearly this cause for concern i'm trying to mitigate it but i was sort of puzzling out as to why now there is this there's this extremely high levels of concern that i didn't see before when the rates were actually higher and that was basically the question i had yeah like in the 90s the robbery rate per year was around 45 to 50,000 robberies a year. We are right now at about 13,000. We've got a few more months to go, but we're not going to come anywhere near that. We won't come anywhere near half that at the rate we're going. So it's it's a remarkable statistic to me that the robbery rate or no, the robbery total in Chicago is so much less than it was in the 90s. I don't know how many of these organized armed robberies used to take place. Was it more one-offs? But it's terrifying what we're seeing uh, on TV and on social media. I don't mean to minimize that, but the numbers are half. Are, are those all robberies or carjackings in particular or just every all, all robberies, all reported robberies? It was just the robbery rate. Yeah, it's a it's a chart that's been shared by some Tribune reporters showing that in like in 91, it was ex- extremely high. And yeah, people were concerned. I'm not saying that people weren't. But, you know, and the other thing is that you're seeing all these things on captured on video because of all the doorbell cameras and all the security cameras that are there that just weren't there back then because you had to store your footage on right. VHS tapes or Betamax or whatever they had back in yeah, 91. Right. But they didn't have but they didn't have these situations <laughs> where every you know, every every other house on the block has got a 24-7 doorbell camera running. So you're catching these these instances like the, the instance we saw of the young man who was walking down an alley in Chicago wearing a backpack and eating a piece of pizza and these two guys go out and beat the crap out of him and and to steal his stuff and it's all caught on rather vivid video something that would not have been caught on video before you know you'd have a TV reporter from the scene of a crime in 91 but you wouldn't have the actual video and so I think that's playing into the, how people are feeling about this right now. I think so too. And it's, it's a, it's not just nightly news or when you're reading the paper in the morning as it would have been in the nineties, it's you get, you're getting push notifications all day from next door or whatever app you have about crime that's being committed near you. So I think it's absolutely something to do with awareness that actually makes it, however, a bigger problem in some ways for the city, right? Because if you're in an environment where if there is crime, people are going to be aware of it, that actually has a really big effect on the city and the per- people's perception of safety in it. So you have to actually be overcorrecting, right? Because uh, it's people are going to be more sensitive to that happening compared to the 90s. Our, homicide, our homicides in the last couple of years were pretty in line with that. I mean, maybe robberies are down. I haven't looked at that, at just robberies, but the fact that people are more aware of it is all the is is actually the perception of safety and its consequences on people's decisions. Yep, uh, is still exists. Well, imagine if we had social media and all those cameras in the '90s. I mean, imagine what we didn't see. Um, and maybe it would have been better if we had. Maybe we would have been more proactive. Uh, or, or I don't know if proactive is the right word, but would have done more about it than we have done since. Uh, because it is kind of a bell-shaped curve to see what Eric showed me. It was, you know, lower, and then it peaked in the ni- early 90s, but then it's since sort of come down. It's etching up a little bit now, but it's sure not going to catch 1991. And it's a good question, Austin, specifically what are those robberies, which ones aren't on that list, et cetera. But uh, I was I was surprised to see that. As we let you guys go today, Austin, you are leaving for the uh, Miami-Chicago soccer tilt tonight, right? Night, 7.30. All the Spanish-language media says Messi's totally out. All the English-language media says he's questionable. I don't <laughs> think he's going to play. I do not. I don't think he's playing. I don't even know if he's coming. I thought it was so, so interesting. They had 10,000 yeah. tickets sold to that game. When it was announced that Messi was going to go to Miami and would and Miami was on the schedule, they sold another 10,000 tickets the next day. Within 24 hours, they, they'd sold 10,000 more tickets. And so then the fire said, if he's not going to play, even if he does play now, we know a lot of you are coming to the match because you want to see Messi. Here's what we're going to do. Your next ticket is going to be a single game ticket discounted 
to the tune of, was it $50? And season passes for next year would be discounted $250. So if you show up and you feel like you didn't get your money's worth because you came to see Messi, we're going to make it up to you. I think that is the nicest, smartest thing one of the teams in town has done in a very long time. If we're going to be uh, compensating disappointed fans, uh, what, what about yeah. Bears fans and White Sox fans? Don't they deserve a break? Bears fans will get... By the way, there was an interesting yeah. article in the Tribune today where the two football writers were writing about was it wrong for Eberflus to elect to go for it on fourth down in the fourth quarter. And they both were, I thought, reasonable about it. They said they disagree with the decision, but they understood the logic, and it wasn't crazy to try and go for it. You guys know the play I'm talking about. What was your thought when the Bears, on the cusp of winning their first game of the season, their first game in a year, um, decided to go for it on fourth down rather than kick a, what was it, 28-yard field goal. They don't get it on fourth down, and they end up losing the game. What was your thought about that, Brandon? Um, I was not totally against the idea of going forward on fourth and one. I thought what was stupid was the trying to fake out the defense, then calling a timeout. And then now the defense is more aware you're going to try to go forward on fourth and one. And then the play call itself after the shotgun. Uh, you have Justin Fields, a really big, tall, athletic quarterback. Just do a quarterback sneak. Push him. Shove him. Get him get him over the line, right? You had a great running back doing a great job. Do the eye form. Get a, get a fullback tight end formation. The shotgun stuff was weird. And I just think the play call itself was is what doomed them. Fourth and one, this, the, if you like the analytics, I'm not a big analytics guy, but the analytics say, the numbers say, Fourth and one, you should probably go forward in that situation. I would have done the same thing, just not that play call, not that, not that order of decision making. If, yeah, yeah. I mean, if your really team bad. can't get it, was, it was two. It wasn't even a yard. It was two feet they had to go. Yeah. And if your team can't right. gain two feet, uh, then maybe you don't deserve to win. And of course, if they gain the two feet, then they either bleed the clock down to almost zero, or they or they certainly are going to going to leave uh, um, Denver with no timeouts uh, to go the length of the field to get a field goal, and uh, so they probably win the game. But you do, I do understand. I thought that the that the football writers in the Tribune made a good point, which is like, yeah, you know, it's like uh, it's it's not just clearly like you got to kick the field goal. I think if I were the coach, I would have said, let's take the points. Uh, Denver is a lousy team, just like we are. If we got the lead, two minutes to go. Probably the worst that's going to happen is we'll go to overtime. So we don't have a brotherly shove. We don't have one of those players where they all line up like a wing and just push the ass of the quarterback forward like a package. I mean, that's, that's what they should have done. That's yeah. what they do in Philadelphia, and some of these other teams have adopted that, and that does seem to get them two and a half feet when they need it. Go ahead. I'm just going to call for it. What? It's time to trade Justin Fields. Trade him. <laughs> Yeah, put them on the Falcons. Brandon, where can you, you don't mean that though, right? Because we actually do. Oh, I do. I, do. I, I think that if for as long as he's been our quarterback, was it uh, kind of a uh, almost two full seasons now, right? Three now. Yeah. We really haven't had a chance to see how good he is because we just haven't had good players or good decisions made around him. He will go to a better team and be spectacular, and then we'll wish we had a spectacular quarterback. I just don't think the team has caught up with what he needs for us to realize how good he can be. Oh, no, I agree. I'm, I'm just selfish. I, I I am thinking about the player and not the team. I think that Justin Fields is being <laughs> uh, served badly by this wow. Bears organization, and he would do a lot better in Atlanta with an offensive head coach and all these playmakers around him. That boy would thrive. So and I think you, Atlanta would welcome it as well. Well, then who are you a fan of, Chicago or Atlanta? <laughs> I mean, that's real nice for Brian. Yeah. I love the Bears. Wow. The Bears, either way, are going to be 0 6, 0 7, 0 8. You know, they're, they're going to be a terrible team. So they're not going to have there, Justin is, Fields next year. Does anybody find it sort of fascinating and entertaining how bad they are at some point? It's like, it's, it's like, a, it's, it's, uh, just the, the Bears nuts. organization, the team, it's just, and, and just watching, like, they've lost. I mean, it's going to be a year since they won a game. And it's, in some ways, it's just sort of fascinating to watch because you can't really hope they're going to make the playoffs or anything now. So can't you just hope that they really, really stink and get 
Oh, they, they will, I think they have the first two picks in the draft for some reason next year. Next year. Yeah, they're right, lined up too. right now to yeah, do that. Yeah. yeah. Is it fun to watch them lose at this point? I don't know. I, I get your point. The novelty is kind of interesting how bad a team can be. And even when they're on the precipice of winning, they find a way to, what is it, snatch, snatch defeat, defeat from, from the, the jaws, jaws of victory. Right. That's, that's kind of what they're able to do. Have a great time tonight, Austin. We want a full report uh, back next week. I guess you can't trot him out there for a few. Just put him out. He'd be better on a wheelchair than the, <laughs> half the players on there anyway. <laughs> I, I wish that for you uh, and uh, and a good night. The weather's going to be good tonight, right? It'll be so, good. And so. I've actually, selfishly, I have seen uh, Messi's first competitive professional game in the United States was at Soldier Field in 2016. And I got to see Messi, and he was wow. out in the first half. I think it was Argentina-Chile, I think. And he came on the second half and scored a hat trick, and it was the most electric athletic feat I've ever seen in person in my life. Wow, wow, wow. Have a good time. That's Austin Burke, Brandon Pope, Eric Zorn's been here. We're produced by Pete Zimmerman and Ben Anderson. Guys, thanks a lot. I'm John Williams, and we'll drop another podcast on you next week. See you guys. All right, y'all. I'll catch you later. Well done. Thanks, Austin. Have fun. See you, Brandon. Thank you. See you. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com. 